What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Thorpe is coming in, gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. Ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne, and he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello and great to have you with us on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to our great friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Sam Edmund here to celebrate the sporting life and times of one of Australian sport's great characters. He's been an Olympic cyclist, a three-time national road champion, a race director, a promoter, a journalist, and after more than half a century in cycling, living proof you're only as old as you feel. John Trevorrow, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Sammy. Or should should we go with Iffy, maybe, because your nickname has basically become your name. Let's address the origins of Iffy first. Uh, the only person who doesn't call me Iffy is m- me, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> uh, well, bike riders love a nickname, and we're in the training camp uh, before we went away to Munich back in 72. And a character in our team, Phil Sawyer, who's one of the top track riders at the time, uh, used to love handing out a nickname, and uh, I never got beaten by anyone because they were better than me. I only ever got beaten because something went wrong. You know, like, oh, if only I hadn't punched you, or if... And he said, bloody iffy, and uh, they all loved it, and it, uh, it stuck. So most of the cycling world calls me iffy. Well, Iffy, you would normally be getting ready for the Tour de France around this time of year. You've strung a few tours together now in a row, haven't you? It's been a bit of an annual pilgrimage for you. How many years in a row have you been going now? I did my first tour in 91, uh, and then I went back in 98 for my second, and I haven't missed one since, so it's 22 or something like that. Yeah. Strange times. Well, the man who did a few tours as well was Lance Armstrong. That documentary just aired. It's fresh in the minds on ESPN recently. It would have had a bit to do with Lance over the journey. Yeah, interviewed him a few times, uh, covered his virtually all his tours, I think, yeah, um, and... Met him, had a few drinks with him in Ireland when he rode the Tour of Ireland. We had a couple of beers at uh, a mate's pub. But uh, I wouldn't say I knew him really well. Um, he was a Texan, there's no doubt about that. Let's tell your story, shall we? For you were born in Melbourne in 1949 and raised in Morwell as the oldest of five boys. Now, your dad Joe was a bikie and your grandfather, apparently he was a tough old bugger as well. Yeah, so Dad, uh, Dad raced in the uh, uh, in 40s um, and uh, went away the Second World War and missed a bit. But wrote, when he came back, rode off scratch with Sid Patterson on the track uh, and beat him in a race here and there. Uh, and, uh, and Jack Herbin, who uh, is our only other world road champion, won the World Amateur Road title in, I think, 1950. 
uh, and he, he he wrote off scratch with Jack on the road. So he's a bit of an all-rounder. Dad, he was a, about a five-foot, uh, two little fiery redhead. They used to call him the pocket tank. Um, but what he was really, what's special about the old man, he had an amazing understanding of how the body works and everything. And he was a fantastic mentor for, for me. And you, your grandfather, you got your toughness for him too. Didn't he captain Oakley back in the day in the old VFA and he was still getting in the punch-ons at the local at 80-plus, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, he got thrown out of Surikoski's pub in Brighton uh, for, for, for fighting at 80-something. He was a tough nut. Yeah, he, he, he was just too young for the First World War and too old for the Second World War, but he went anyway. And I reckon it changed in a lot of ways. He was a, a non-drinker before he went away to, to the Second World War, but uh, that changed. He became a bit of a drinker and a gambler. So, uh, yeah, everything changed with the, uh, with the old grandfather. But I'll tell you how tough he was. Uh, they used to live on, on the Penn Highway right up near where Hawthorne Road is there. And Dad would come home one evening, uh, waiting for a gap in the traffic, and drives, dives into the driveway. Old grandfather had just walked up from Sarakoski's pub. He was having a drink out of the, out of the garden tap uh, down on his knees and suddenly saw the light flashing in the driveway. So he went to get out of the way, because he'd had a couple too many, fell on the driveway, and Dad ran over him, right over his neck and shoulders. What? And it was a bump, bump, and Dad thought, oh, it's just a bit of that rough concrete, and just walked straight inside. And said to his mum, where's the old man? She said, I haven't come back from the pub yet. And so next minute there's a ring, ring at the door, one of those ring, ring, ring. So he opens the door and there's his old man standing there holding his shoulder and his neck. He said, what happened? He said, some bastard just ran over me. He said, what happened to Pan Highway? He said, no, in the driveway. And Dad said, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the time the, by the time the family moved down to Morwaliffy, the Trevorrow household was absolutely buzzing on Sundays, wasn't it? You had the whole town around there of a weekend, every weekend. Yeah, well, Dad uh, started this because I was so keen uh, on the bike, you know, all the uh, cycling stories. And when the Sun Tour would come to town in the early 50s and right through, the rides would all stay at our place. So I was just wanted to be a bike rider. I wanted to be a bike rider. I wanted to ride the Sun Tour. Those were the two things from my longest-serving memories. Um, and so, yeah, so then when I got to 11, you could see a... Okay, he's going to race. So uh, he organised a race, a, a local race at the, with the Alarm Prize at a schoolboys race, and uh, I, I got back from that and couldn't stop yapping about it. And they gave me enough start that I won my first race. So then Dad said, "Oh, well, we'd better start a bike club up." So he started up the Mall Cycling Club, which is uh, still going today. Um, and um, yeah. Fantastic. And isn't it amazing to think that you would have sat there as a four, five, six, seven-year-old mesmerised by these old war stories of these old bikies and life on the road, and then to think that in the years to come, which we'll get to later, you would go from wanting to race to racing it, winning it, and then being the race director of it up until, what, 2019. So it's Australia's oldest stage race. It's been a constant in your life all the way through. Yeah, a bit of a rocky story, isn't it? But uh, very much the case. And uh, I, I love the event. I've got a special uh, um, place in my heart for, for the, uh, what is the uh, Jayco Herald Sun Tour these days. Uh, so Gippsland loved it cycling, Iffy. The under-16-mile championships are in Warrigal one year, and you and your brother Greg were a big chance. Ah, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful story. You've got a good memories, Sammy. Um, yeah, so uh, I remember before the start, Dad's telling us you know, what to do. And we had a couple of guys. We had some re- really good bike rides in the area, actually. And Lee and Gatha had a guy named Alan Love, 
who uh, just passed away last week, unfortunately, who was the, probably the best in the state, or best, I think he won the national title. Uh, and uh, another guy, Daryl DeMarte, uh, uh, and they were really good. So you've got to be up with them, you know, at three laps to go and whatever. So I mean, as we're coming up towards three laps to go, Greg was in the perfect position. Now, he was only 12 months or 13 months younger than me, and there wasn't much between us, just that I was a fraction quicker because I was a year older. So Greg's got him in the perfect spot. I'm too far back. Dad says, get up where Greg is. So I, I moved up around the outside and then dived underneath him and said, let me in, as we're coming up to sort of two and a half to go. And he said, no. I said, Dad said, so reluctantly he let me in. <laughs> and I ended up running, I think, around second to, to Ella Love in the race. And afterwards, Dad said, uh, good ride, John, but gee, good ride, Greg, great spot. He said, what you let your brother in for? He said, he said that you said. <laughs> just, I told him to get up where you are. You didn't have to let him in. Yeah, it was quite funny. Uh, just mm. with your old man, Joe, and to think years later, you know, that you'd be a regular sight on the roads out that way, wouldn't you? He'd be putting along on the motorbike, motor pacing you. You'd be on the push bike behind him. And he obviously shaped who you are as a person, but also the athlete you became as well. I mean, I think you thought he was ahead of his times in terms of training and preparation, wasn't he? Oh, very much so. He, he was. Uh, he really understood that you train by how your body feels. So if you feel a bit tired, a bit run down, you work off your heart rate, uh, you, you back off and train hard when, when, when you felt really good. And I remember it'd be our training with our certain sprint spots. And we'd, uh, with the wind, you know, you get underneath the wheel. And if I tried to come underneath, he'd run me off the road. And I said, well, you do that. We said, well, bike rider wouldn't let you come under there. You've got to come around the hard way, mate. Fantastic. <laughs> so great, great yards like that. And some of the times, I remember when I was training which I ended up winning my uh, first Aussie road time when I was just a 20-year-old out at Geelong. And I remember we were training before that and um, we are going out. And even though it was it was summertime, it was really cold in the mornings at the back of uh, Terrell, you know, Moore, Terrell and Hayfield there. Freezing cold. Well, I'd soon warm up. And Dad would be freezing by the time we got to our halfway point. And he'd stop. He'd have a bit of paper up his shirt. He'd light a little fire, put a bit of petrol onto it, light a fire, thaw himself out, and then he'd catch me again. <laughs> <laughs> little campfires along the way. Yeah, yeah, little campfire along the way. Fantastic. Yeah. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We've just lifted the lid on the colourful career of John Trevorrow, but don't go anywhere. Next, we'll delve into Iffy's professional career and why he was once referred to as the smoking kangaroo. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back. Great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're chatting with Aussie cycling icon John Trevorrow. Well, John, what was the first race where you thought, hang on, I can actually make something of this and turn dreams to reality? Was it in Geelong, as you say, in 1970 as a 20-year-old? Well, that was what thrust me into the, uh, uh, into the forefront in people's minds, I suppose. But I'd already, I suppose the year before, uh, I had a pretty good year. I got back onto Scratch, which is the, the mark you know, in, in, of the best riders. Uh, we, and there was a handful of uh, young blokes, you know, Donnie Allen, uh, who went on, to be one of our great uh, overseas riders, myself, and there was the Sansonettis and um, Donnie Wilson, real, real good bike. I got back 
that year won a couple of criteriums, you know, and showing a bit of speed. So you've taken me back. The race where I realised that I might have been able to be a decent road rider was a. They used to have the selection races for the Victorian team around at the back of Toolan Vale. And one of those test races, I got into the uh, the front group um, and I got away with a guy named Peter McDermott, who really was our number one bike rider in Australia at the time. And we caught the breakaway and and um, I ended up doing an iffy and, and, and crashed on the last lap. But I, from that day, I realised, yeah, I, I, I can make it here. And that was selection races for the Mexico Olympics uh, and then uh, um, won that Aussie road title. And that got you to the 1970 Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh, of course, in Scotland. And Morwell, where you were doing your thing, was really excited. The town was in celebration. Well, yes, I was the first uh, um, guy from the Latrobe Valley, I think even Gippsland, to go to the Games. And back then, the, going to the Com Games or Olympics was, you know, equally as big, I, I guess. Uh, but I can remember the town being just ex- as excited that I was actually going overseas. <laughs> because back then, well, you know, it's 1970, the, the Jumbo had just come out the year before. I suppose Melbourne people travelled, the youngsters maybe travelled overseas a little bit, but countries kids never got to go overseas. Yeah, yeah. And so if you then, by 1972, you're off to the Olympics, obviously in Munich that year, and your career is going from strength to strength. Now, you help your teammate Clyde Sefton to silver in the road race after he got in the early move, but obviously your memories of this time, I imagine, remain dominated by, well, the birth of your daughter was one other thing happening if you, this time wasn't hectic enough, and that tragic terrorist attack as well. We rode the team time trial on about the first or second day of the Games, 100K, which used to be a tough event, four up, 100 kilometres, swapping turns. Um, that that was a, a tough day in the office. And then we had to, then the road race was towards the end. So all the track racing in between. And we were quite successful at that Games. We got uh, a couple of silver medals on the track as well. But then, as, you, uh, as you've mentioned, after the track racing finished, we had this terrible situation with the, uh, where the... Uh, the terrorists came in and uh, took uh, a whole of the uh, Israeli athletes hostage in the, in the building, which was right near us. So there was the Aussie rooms, I can't remember who was next door, and then the Israelis. So we you know, saw a lot of that unfold. I remember, but it happened, the night happened, the next morning, that morning we were supposed to be racing, the road race. We got woken up by the team managers to say, hang on guys, there's been a terrorist attack and there won't be any racing today. And, I can remember wondering what he was talking about because, like now, you say the word terrorist and you immediately get a mental picture. But back then, mm. there'd never been anything like that. So I didn't know what, what he was going on about. Scary times, but you fulfilled the games, obviously. And after the Olympics, you got asked to do the Tour of Mexico. And you find yourself uh, going from a city dominated by news of terrorist attacks to the resort town of Puerto Vallarta. Um, quite a lavish uh, establishment, wasn't it? Yeah, so what happened, we came back from the Games, uh, and I, Lisa had just been born, so she was one week old. I got home uh, just in time for her to, to pick Kay and, and Lisa up from the hospital, bring them home to, into our little commission house in, in Maui. Right. Uh, and I remember the, the, the next morning, proud dad wheeling uh, um, Lisa in a little pram up to the local news agency, grabbed the paper, walked back in, front door reading the paper and Kay says where's Lisa I left her parked out front of the news agent what? in the pram so I had to run back so I was, I was pretty new at that all that stuff <laughs> you then, left her uh, at the news agent yeah yeah I sort of uh, yeah slipped my mind but um, 
I uh, then went over to Tassie to run through Tasmania, and from that they selected a team to go and race uh, in the Tour of Mexico. So yeah. it was virtually the, the Olympic team plus a couple of others. So uh, I said to Kay, Kay wasn't happy about too happy, but went over there, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was an experience. So was it holiday or work? I mean, or did you blur the two? Well, it was a bit of both. I mean, we, we'd never stayed in a resort-type place like that. We, we, we get to Porto Vallarta, which is quite famous. It's where the, the love boat docks. Uh, it might have been a little bit different back in uh, 1972. But um, lavish resort. Uh, and uh, first time I'd ever seen a, a fridge that was fully stocked. Uh, I remember we took the beers out the back and opened them in the bottom and put them back in so we didn't have to pay for them. <laughs> And uh, I remember we were one of the first teams there and we were laying out uh, in, in, in the sun. I was laying on a lilo and I used to enjoy a, uh, an occasional cigarette. Uh, and I'm laying on the lilo and uh, uh, having a cigarette and having a beer. And the Italian team arrived and talking to our guys. And one of the Italians said, hey, your mechanic, he, he had a good time. And uh, Clyde Simpson said, that's not our mechanic, that's your Australian road champion. <laughs> <laughs> We went straight up to the high altitude, and Clyde, Seth, and I both uh, were out the first day. Clyde uh, had heat exhaustion and collapsed, and I was close to it, and I stopped and gave him a hand, probably an excuse to, to pull out. So we were out first day. Donnie Allen was out, I think, on the second day. And on about day four or five, we read that Eddie Merckx was going to come to attempt to break the hour rule, the hour record on the track, which was huge back then. So we snuck away, uh, went right across Mexico on buses and trains and whatever, and got to Mexico City and watched Eddie Merckx break the hour record, which was uh, something really special to be able to witness that. So that, that. I remember that being special. So you got talked out of retirement to race the 1974 Sun Tour. He actually finished fifth. But what was the trigger to get you out of retirement? <laughs> it was funny, actually. It was a mate... Mate of mine, Robbie Love and I were sitting having a couple of quiet ones, and I hadn't been on the bike for quite a few months. Uh, and a guy, a local guy uh, from, from from the valley, but then Graham Riley, who was a you know hard nosed pro, won the Australian road title. And we're a bit of rivalry there. We used to train with him, and um, I said, "Bah, Graham Riley winning the Australian road title," and he was very quick. Um, but I said, "I could uh, I could start training now and beat him in the Sun Tour." And so we had a bet like it was $10 or something. And uh, so I rang, I was still an amateur. So I remember ringing on the Monday, ringing um, the, the pro body and uh, talking to the guy who used to run it, Sid, 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 I think it was, anyway. And um, I said, look, I'm thinking about uh, turning pro ride the Sun Tour. Would I get a ride? He said, oh, yeah, no worries if you fit. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fit. Well, I wasn't. So uh, I turned pro and... Uh, um, raced a couple of races and then rode the Sun Tour, which got my bum kicked, but uh, it was fantastic. I yeah. just fell in love with it. Well, yeah. You did, and you did. You finished fifth, and you did fall in love with it because you came back the next year in 75, and you ended up winning the first of your three Sun Tour titles. Yes, well, the next year, uh, it was a great rivalry because uh, Donny Allen had come back. Donny had ridden the Tour de France, and um, he was a great bike rider, so we had a wonderful duel. Donny also... Uh, was the first Australian to to win a stage in a Grand Tour. He won a stage in the in the Vuelta and finished two Tours de France. So, yeah, he was a great all rounder. It was big news in '76 the next year. You're going for back to back, but you blew it on the opening day, didn't you? Yeah, 
it's a terrible story, really. So dumps uh, David Allen, the younger brother of Donnie, who was amazing uh, um, athlete. He's not with us any longer, but but he he was. Uh, as tough as they come, and a real nuggety little, a bit shorter than Donny, who's about my size, but as tough as nails. One, I think, three, three Melbourne to Warnables, and, uh, and and wasn't much. He, he didn't win, but he had a, a um, another side to him, and he and I didn't get on. So anyway, we decided to have a blue on the first day, heading out the back of Warrigal into my home territory. We got off the bike and had a punch up. I can remember the officials and my old man and the officials trying to grab us and there wasn't many punches landed because you're on in, with bike shoes and cleats. We're sliding around the road and uh, more falling over than uh, landing punches. So he got back on the bike and we lost eight minutes on the first day. So uh, that was virtually uh, all chance of winning the race gone. But uh, I ended up having probably one of my best tours. David Allen's cousin, Peter Basanko, won that tour, 76. Your crowning glory, though, as a cyclist was arguably the three national titles in a row, 78, 79 and 80, which for those unfamiliar with cycling is a massive achievement given you would have been heavily marked having won one, especially having won two in 1980. It's impossible to think that you'd got away and won three in a row. Yeah, they're very fond memories. My first one was in Tassie and, um, you know, I remember it because my first pro title, I'd won an amateur one years before a nice win but uh, the, the next two were really special the second one was up the back of Newcastle Dumps was in fantastic form we ended up he was just it was one a small circuit only about 5k around with one really steep hill and or short sharp hill and he would attack up there every lap and in the end we just blew everyone away and we would just roll around do turns the next lap and then he'd bang up the hill again and we lapped the field. You don't see many laps down in uh, in road titles normally, so that was a great uh, uh, a great day, a really good. Uh, we were doing track stands on the last lap, uh, Dumps and I, fighting for position with the last couple of k to go. So it was quite funny, really. And uh, you know, not a love, not a love lost. And the same in the the, the next year in um, in eighty was at Sandown, and Dumps and I blowing again the break. Um, the top bike was going up the road, dumps on flying around, and he was having a bad day. I didn't realise, and he pulled out and said, "See you later, ex-Australian champ." Ugh. So anyway, a couple of us started chasing, and I got away from them on my own, and bridged the gap to with Peter Senko and and uh, and those guys, and managed to get across and uh, and won the sprint. I can remember dumps was absolutely. Oh, I, did, I just had to give him a smirk, and he was just about jumping out of his. Uh, of his skin, but uh, it was. But he got me the next year. I, the next year, we're up in Berry, and if I can win this, I become the first person to win the fourth and uh, four in a row. And um, come to, the, there's only four of us left. Come to the finish, there was uh, uh, Peter Sanko and Dumps, who cousins, Clyde Sefton, and myself. I, I made my move about two twenty, two forty out. Instead of just going for the line, and it would have been out of Clyde and I, and I felt I had the, the sprint to beat him that day. But I, uh, I just stalled for a second when I got to dumps just to interfere with him, I suppose, hold him in, and a little bug up stuck his elbow in and sort of grabbed me on the uh, uh, on the midriff and sat up. And then so there's Clyde going away. I'm mm-hmm. trying to get free. I finally got free, but I lost that length in a bit, and oh, I probably lost it by about half a length to uh, to Clyde. But uh, so. Let's, Another iffy story. Well, it was an iffy story, but maybe three months, two months off the bike when you got a call out of the blue asking if you'd step up and fly to Italy 
to do the Giro d'Italia, obviously one of the three Grand Tours and one of the biggest races in the world. Yeah, look, and that's what uh, uh, won me over. So I remember I get the call from Gianni, and it's probably uh, beginning of April. I haven't been on the bike since the end of that six, which is the end of January, so a couple of two and a half months off the bike, carrying a couple of pounds. And uh, Gianni, their, their number one sprinter, had um, broken his collarbone or something, and he uh, and he convinced him that I was the man to come over and, and replace him. DS, a bloke named Florent Glenn Blarenberg, a Belgian who had been Donny Allen's uh, uh, DS at, at, when he was at Frizzle. Uh, he took one look at me and knew I was uh, carrying too much weight. He, he wasn't. He didn't like me right from the start. So I only had two races in Belgium. I went down to to Italy to Trieste where it started and uh, and started uh, the, the Giro with uh, uh, probably about five or six kilos of uh, extra baggage. Yeah, that's right. And the team were unhappy with you, as you say, or portions of the team. So their mood only soured when three days in, Ify, they bust you um, puffing on a dart. Yeah, or Florent uh, Van Larenberg called me, which is the worst thing. Uh, well, I, I sort of, the funny thing was, we got there, and the first stage was a, it was a prologue time trial, and the truck had broken down its way there, and my new bike was on that, and all the others had brought a bike with them on the plane, but because I was getting a new one, I, I, I didn't, uh, mine hadn't arrived, so I had to borrow one of the other riders in the team's bike for the, for the prologue, and then mine turned up. So I remember coming down to breakfast, and Gianni says, uh, John, are you smoking? I said, I just have an occasion one to calm the nerves. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I didn't tell him I smoked a pack of the day. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, a day later, he says to me, uh, I've done a deal. So he did a deal with a, with a uh, cigarette company. And I had to start the stage that, that day with a cigarette. He commercialised uh, it. And I got paid quite a few hundred dollars to do this. And I don't know how much Gianni got, a bit more, I would say. Uh, and uh, so they, so as they start the stage, I'm sitting there having a dart, and uh, as they fired the gun, I butted on the head stem, and down the road we go. So that becomes a big story, and they start calling me the smoking kangaroo. <laughs> it was a big item in the paper, wasn't it? Didn't you have your own column for a while? Well, uh, yes, so I became uh, the, the clown of the race, I suppose, and they started calling uh, the kangaroo fumer or something, the smoking kangaroo, a little column on the back of the Gazetta della Sport, which is the daily newspaper. And I would tell them, you know, embellish things a little bit, so all these different stories. And the crowd from climbing, you know, yelling at me, no smoking tomorrow, I'd get all the time or whatever. They fell in love with the smoking kangaroo. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life at Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Next... John Trevorrow's health scare and the most difficult period of his life. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting with triple Australian cycling national champion John Trevorrow. Ify, in early 2013, not long after another edition of your beloved Jayco Herald Sun Tour, you begin to feel a little unwell. You're 63. What was happening? Yeah, well, uh, I can remember we were at a, um, a Van Sank club meeting, which is a, a sport 
fantastic sporting club I'm in with mostly tired old footballers and a couple of uh, worn-out bike riders. Um, and it's a great uh, uh, club. And we're having a, our annual Australia Day lunch, which is never on Australia Day, but Sammy Kegovic uh, cooks the lamb, or cooks one slice of lamb and claims he cooks it all. Uh, and it was up at Jerry Ryan's, uh, who's, a, who's a member up at uh, Mistleton Winery. And I remember it was 2013, you did right, and uh, I was feeling really crook. I couldn't even have a drink. And I'm going to be pretty crook if I can't have a drink. And, uh, and so I can remember Johnny Rebo looked at me and said, mate, you are green. And so Jerry calls one of his uh, guys over and they whisk me into the local Gamby uh, hospital. And the guy there says, oh, you need to get up to uh, Shepparton. So they rest me up to Shepparton Hospital. And I can't really find much, so uh, I just feel nauseous and sick and uh, whatever. So uh, I end up uh, back home in Geelong, and Kay said, enough of this. So she makes me go for a, for a, uh, a check over. It was just Easter. And um, the doctor finally whacks the camera down um, down and up. I felt like a pig on the spit. And uh, kind of said, oh, mate, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you've got a, a large tumour in the middle of your, of your esophagus. So... Um, I remember him saying, we'll have to do is run some tests uh, to find out uh, if it's malignant or not. He said, but it's, by the size of it, I'd be really surprised if it wasn't. That was on the Wednesday. And I remember uh, I did the worst thing you could do. We're sitting at home that night. And on the Friday, I'm going to get the results. And I remember Googling up uh, mm-hmm. esophageal cancer. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't do that. It wasn't a pretty picture. And I remember Kay saying, what's it say? I said, oh, look, uh, I'm not, I can't really understand. We'll, we'll find out on Friday. She said, yeah, we'll wait. Till I get the, the the results of the autopsy, I said, "I think you mean biopsy, darling." <laughs> <laughs> autopsy. Well, not to make light of it, but obviously, when you're told that you've got cancer of the esophagus, there's a chance that that can be down the track. I imagine it hit like an absolute sledgehammer. Yeah, it did. Uh, so on the Friday, I would go in there. He said, "Yeah, look, it's uh, it is uh, um, it's malignant, and um, we're, we're going to whack it out." He said, uh, if it, and, and it's some, the positive side, if it hasn't gotten outside of that area, uh, then uh, we'll be right. So he said, look, this is the plan. He said, we'll, we'll be aggressive. Uh, we'll put you on a couple of months of uh, strong chemo uh, and radiation. And then uh, um, there'll be uh, a month gap before we can actually uh, chop it out, but we'll, we'll chop it out. And he told me these other doctors he brought on board to do all of this. So I then said, well, if there's a month between, well, could I still go to the Tour de France? Oh. So I remember Kay kicking me, and uh, and he said, I don't think you'd be well. I said, yeah, but I could. If, if, if. He said, well, you can do anything. I said, well, because Ronnie Reid and I were writing a book on the 100th Tour and sort of virtually the story of, of Green Edge, the new site that Jerry Ryan had put together, and... Um, you know, and we'd already started on it. And, and I can remember sitting in the pub a few days later with Jerry and Ron because we were talking about it and I'm telling them the news that I, uh, what I'd been diagnosed. And I remember Ronnie Reed saying, oh, well, you know, I guess that would make it a bit hard for the book. I said, no, I'll be, I'll be going. And Ron says, no, you won't. And Jerry said, I'll put my money on Iffy. So Jerry backed me. And sure enough, uh, um, I had, yeah, couple of months of, of chemo and uh, and I remember I had my last uh, chemo radiation on the Tuesday and left uh, to go away on the tour on on the Wednesday. So I worked with Ronnie Reed and, and another mate of mine, Ronnie Gower, two Ronnies as I call them, and, and they were my nursemaids. 
Jeez, I imagine they would have been pretty busy nurses over there too at various times. If he, what did you weigh back then? Oh, I got to my record weight just before that, 105 kilos. Uh, considering I used to race at about 68, uh, it was a bit under, but uh, um, I got down to uh, 70 kilos, 69 kilos after the off. Uh, part of it being quick, but uh, it's been fantastic actually. I, I'm 71 kilos virtually all the time. I can eat what, virtually whatever I want, uh, drink what I want. Be a bit careful on some of the type of foods I eat. Uh, so the, the fast foods have gone out the window. Um, but, but, but not only has it saved your life, it's almost enhanced your life, hasn't it? Well, you know, you've travelled away with me on the tour a few times, uh, Sammy, and you know that I do enjoy um, a nice evening and a good food and, and whatever. So uh, it has enhanced my life, exactly. Fantastic. Well, we're chatting with John Ify Travara here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back very shortly to look at Ify's love affair with the Tour de France. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals. John Trevorrow has taken us on a fair old trip down memory lane today, but we might have saved the best for last. Ify, how did the move to journalism come about? Uh, Colin Duck was the editor of, uh, of The Sun back in the 80s. I remember Colin saying to me, uh, would you be interested in doing a, a, a column during the Sun tour? Had a couple of really good uh, teachers in there, Billy Hitchings and Simon Townley, who are both great journalists. And You mentioned Simon Townley. So by 1991, you still hadn't been to the Tour de France, and it was you and Simon who went for the first time. Now, Simon was nervous by nature, and that first Tour de France was a fair old learning experience, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Look, it was fantastic. We, uh, I remember we... Uh, we flew over, we flew into Lyon. It was just the two of us. We virtually didn't do any booking. Uh, we booked uh, in Lyon, make sure we got a good hotel where the team was staying because we wanted to be where Phil Anderson was riding with Motorola, so we wanted to be into their hotel. We got into their actual hotel. And I think we rarely booked uh, for the rest of the tour. We just, the two of us, we would get in here and there, you know. Uh, iffy stories, of course. But uh, we were landing in Lyon. I remember um, Simon wanted to meet Eddie Merckx. That's all he wanted to do. So we get there late in the evening, uh, drive, fly to Paris, drive down to Lyon, book in, and there is Eddie Merckx holding court in uh, in the lounge to the side there. The bike riders have all been sent to bed, I suppose, and there's the mechanics and all that. And Eddie Merckx was the bike sponsor of Phil Anderson's team, of the Motorola team. And so is Eddie, and, and uh, I'd imported Eddie's bikes into Australia a couple of years earlier, so I knew, you know, knew him, and I'd raced against him, of course, but uh, not in his league. Anyway, uh, Eddie spots me, comes over and says, oh, come and join us. And so Simon, oh, great, you're going to get to meet Eddie Merck. So we finish signing and go over and, and he's in the middle of telling a great story about uh, he and uh, he, uh, the race between him and O'Connor and a famous Tour de France. And everyone's sort of listening. And anyway, the mechanic says to, uh, to Eddie, he said, that's a good story, Eddie. He said, but I, there was someone here who's done something you never did. And what's that, says Eddie, you know. And I'm looking around too, and the mechanic points to me. I have seen this man drunk in a nightclub in Belgium and run third in the race the next day. <laughs> so this guy obviously remembered me from, uh, you know, uh, 
quite a few, 10 years earlier or whatever, or 20 years earlier, whatever. This is our first day in the press car. We've got the special sticker which allows us to go in the race and all of that. They're sorry in the car with me, very nervous. So they, And there was no uh, under control section like they normally have because they, the, the race went, uh, or might have been one kilometre of control and, and then it was off. So they sent all us press cars off, so we go a kilometre down the road and it swings around and comes right back and we're virtually looking at the start line on this bridge. So a whole stack of the press cars stopped to have a look at the start. So we oh, stop with them, watch them fire the gun. We all go to take off. Now, what I made a mistake. I've been too cocky. I should have made sure I wasn't the last car. But I'm the last of the press cars. And then it's sort of a bit of a blockage in front. So the race is coming up. The car comes up. It's controlling all of this. And out the top of that is Bernard Hinault, the ex you know, five-time winner. Five-time winner of the tour. Toughest man in cycling. Huge he's name. T- the, the, yeah, he's a tough man. Anyway, he's hanging out the, the, the sun rev. He's got the big stick with a circle on it no, to, to direct the traffic. And so he's yelling at me because I'm the only car he can get to. And he's screaming at me. And next minute, he's hitting me over the... Well, belting my arm with, with, the, with the stick and screaming at me in French. And I have no idea what he's saying. So one rider has already passed us and the rest of the bunch is coming. So we're in deep, deep trouble. I'm going to get kicked off the tour first day. So luckily for me, as we go around, scram around the corner, as the, I can see the bunch coming up by us in the, in the mirror, the two cars in front of me crash, actually run into each other, bounce apart, and I've gone through the gap with Simon screaming and then left uh, Bernie, Bernie, you know, to, to delve with the, with the wreckage behind me. So, and I... Got forgotten about. I never got called up, never got into any more trouble. So uh, we survived that. But, uh, yeah, we had a fantastic time, a, a, a great trip. I remember, as I said, we didn't book ahead hardly at all, but a couple of days because we were in an area where there might be many um, uh, hotels, we, we did book ahead. Most of them, we just drive to the town, there's the finish, walk to one or two hotels and find a room. Two beds, thank you, bang, job's done. So... We book ahead, and, and uh, Simon had uh, schoolboy French. So he's ringing this guy, and he's uh, booking the room for, for tonight. Uh, Ern Lee, do we? But he got his Ern Lees and Wees and that mixed up. So he, he was one room for two nights with one bed, which we really wanted one room for one night with two beds. So he was emphatic on the one bed. So when we turn up... Uh, um, They'd already closed, and there was a note saying your keys across the road in a little in a pub. So we went over to the pub, get the keys, go back in, let ourselves in, and there's the room with one bed. Oh, Simon is not happy. That's all right, mate. Put a pillow down. No, no, no. He made a bed up on the floor. He wasn't going to sleep with me, but it was quite funny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you would obviously go. Every year, obviously, went back in '98. You've been going every year, and then Jerry Ryan, your close friend, starts Australia's first and only World Tour team, now known as Mitchelton Scott, formerly Green Edge, in 2011. And you've made it an annual event where you're almost the mascot of the team, aren't you? You take a lot of Jerry's corporate guests on the tour, and all sorts of shenanigans take place. It's fair to say because corporate guests, cars, and the tour are a delicate relationship at the best of times, but. One of those hairy moments came with Ron Reed. I don't know if the year you were doing the book or not, but um, there was fire involved, I think. Well, 
Yeah, so before Jerry saw the team, I took him on four or five tours to France in, in the Iffy uh, uh, tour. And because we made a couple of movies, detour movies, mm-hmm. with uh, Dan Jones, uh, the 75 tour and I think the 70, uh, sorry, no, 2005 and 2007 tours, I think. And, um, and, and Jerry had sort of supported those as well. So when Jerry started the team, he decided, uh, I, I met with him and Shane, he said, no, just jobs for the boys here. Uh, I had to sit down with them and talk about what I, he felt my, uh, where my levels of expertise were. And I said, well, you know, I'll look after your VIPs and all of that. Now, Jerry's a bit nervous because I, I carted him around the tour and he had some great accommodations and some rough ones at different times. So I was a bit nervous about that. He said, what's your uh, experience? I said, well, I've looked after the VIPs at the tour to front, uh, at the at the at the Sun tour. He said, "That's bullshit." He said, "I'm the bloody major sponsor. He never looked after me." <laughs> so anyway, he decided uh, he, that night he was talking with the family. He said, uh, uh, "Johnny wants a what's a job?" And his lovely daughter Sarah said, "Oh, Dad, he's a team mascot. He's perfect." So that's what I'm officially the team mascot. So what happened with Ron Reid, of course, a decorated former Herald Sun Sports journo, the Hound. And let's just say it's, it is difficult to ruffle his feathers at the best of time, but you managed to do that on one particular occasion. Oh, on many occasions, actually. So, so um, he's pretty good in the, as a passenger in the car, but um, you know when we, we drive as quick as we do, he can get a little bit nervous at times. But um, one day, so we're, it was Simon Townley as well. There was Simon Townley. There was uh, Ronnie Reed, Steve the Drunk. I can't remember Steve's other name, but if you nickname Steve the Drunk in our company, you've got a serious problem. Uh, and myself. <laughs> and we're well ahead of the race. It was a really hot day, and um, we we're about half an hour ahead. So we're, we're sitting there. Uh, you know, we found a little roadside uh, cafe and we're having a, a, a rosé. Back then you were driving, you were allowed to have a couple of drinks. Now it's a, it's a zero uh, tolerance. So we've, we've knocked down a beautiful bottle of rosé. It's 40-plus degree day. And uh, so, oh, gee, we're a bit ahead of time. We might still have another one. So we order another bottle. And, uh, and suddenly we hear the choppers coming. I said, that's a bit funny. Choppers a fair way ahead. Suddenly a breakaway goes past. Jesus, look, so you're half an hour ahead of schedule. So we quickly jump in the car, but now I'm behind, behind the brake and I've got the, the, the sticker, which is not allowing me to really be where, where I am. So we look at, quickly look at the map. I said, look, there's a side road here. We'll take that and about 40k flat stick we should get in front. So away we go on the side road. And I noticed a couple of little spot fires. I thought, it's a bit strange. We come roaring around this corner, this little Peugeot humming. And there is a, a giant haystack, which was on the back of a trailer, you know, those really big um, round haystacks. And it's self-combusted. It's on fire. And that's what the other flames had been. Bits of it had dropped out of the back. And there's a guy, he's unhooked his tractor, and he's trying to fix it, but there's, and there's another couple of guys standing there. But there's flames everywhere. The big tree has actually caught fire, and we've pulled up. And I thought, oh, we're bugging we're, we're now. We're not going to get to the finish. But then he, he's backed his trailer out of the way, and there's just gap for me to fit. Uh, I've got to drive through some of the flames. I said to Ron, put your window up. And I remember Ronnie saying, you idiot, you're not. He'll be right. So through we go, through the flames. So then we hot foot it, and we come out onto, uh, we meet the race on this 
trajectory that sort of had. We could see the lead car to the right. Anyway, this big copper just put his hand up. But he made a mistake of looking over towards the race. And I dived underneath him <laughs> and just got just in front of the race. So we managed to get in. And it was good because race to the finish, dived out of the car, ran to the finish line. As he got to the line, they sprinted through. And Robbie McEwen won the stage. And uh, Ronnie and I were there to do the interview. Fantastic. Before we go, we've got just enough time here. Of your racing career, I should ask, is there anything that really stands out as a highlight to you? The one that really stands out, I guess, was Tour of Tassie. So Tour of Tasmania was the biggest race for the amateurs. It was like the, the our Sun Tour. It was the only real uh, uh, national tour. And uh, the Examiner Tour of the North, as they call it. And I ran second and third in it. Um, uh, and never won it in the amateur days and then I turned pro and thought I will never get to ride that again and then, so then in 79 they decided to make it a pro-am and it was the first pro-am race in Australia so we're the amateurs top amateurs and the top pros because back then a lot of guys stayed amateur because you couldn't once you turned pro you couldn't go to the games that didn't change from the 90s so after, after Munich I turned pro I could never go to a games again so that's how it used to be so there wasn't much difference between the amateurs and the pros in ability. You know, a lot of our top amateurs could have been really great pros, like the Sansonettis and so on. And um, so this was always going to be a great race, uh, this first pro-am tour. But I'd had a few months off, as I used to often do, so I was a bit overweight. And my two brothers, Glenn and Rick, were real keen for me to ride this because we'd never been able to race against each other in, in open company. Come on, come on. So they talked me into... To, to racing, but I was overweight. So we uh, we get down to Tassie, and I remember stage one, we're riding out of Launceston, and Peter Basanko, Bulldog, my great rider, was in great form. And he looked at me and said, Iffy, you look like you farted in your pantyhose. Because <laughs> I was carrying a little bit of weight. Well, I ended up, I rode myself in, and I ended up winning that. I got dragged myself up over uh, Pepper Hill, and, and uh, won about three stages, and and um, and won the tour. And that, to me, is my probably one of my greatest wins because I never expected to win it. So I finally got to win my, my tour of Tassie uh, in a surprise way. So I suppose that one sticks out. Well, thank you, John Trevorrow, for the memories. It's an amazing journey in cycling, and it isn't over yet because, you know, before Simon Gerrans, before Cadell Evans, and even earlier than Phil Anderson, you were among those blazing the trail. You've been everything in your beloved sport, and you keep giving. We appreciate your time today. Thanks, Sammy. And thanks for your time, too. You've been listening, of course, to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll catch you next week to celebrate the life of another sporting icon. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.